we're going to move on to something far more wonderful, and that is to recite together as we stand the Nicene Creed. This puts it all together. This is the theological cornerstone of all of classical Christianity, the Eastern Orthodoxies, the Oriental Orthodoxies, Ethiopian, Coptic, and India, as well as Eastern proper Orthodoxy in Russia, Greece, wherever it might be, Roman Catholicism, all Protestantism, and Evangelicalism. And so, this in 325 and then refined in 381, let's say it together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate, from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. That's powerful. You may be seated. By the way, when it says we believe in one holy Catholic church, Rome only had four or five delegates there in Constantinople. There were 400 from the east. So we're not talking Roman Catholicism. And uh, we'll squabble about baptism for the forgiveness of sins. But certainly that's the outward sign of what Christ has done in our lives, what God has done in our lives. All of this, in my wanting to present to you comes back to a very simple kind of statement right here. Understanding who God is will define why you and I exist. It really does all go back to God. Defines not only who you and I are, but who, well, who we are as persons, why we exist, who we are as persons, and how we may be most fulfilled individually and in relationship to others to the natural world, and above all else, the most important of all is to our Creator. But understanding who God is that puts it all together for us. That's why atheism and pantheism are so utterly bankrupt. And so let's begin to fill in a little bit a Trinitarian worldview. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I want to help cons construct a transcultural Trinitarian worldview. This is what I teach around the world and many others do as well. This is our God, so it fits absolutely everywhere. Let's go there. I want to talk about just several different angles in all of this. First of all, Trinity before creation. 
Trinity and impersonal creation. Trinity and then personal creation will include that as well. Unity and diversity in the universe. How does God as three in one relate to that? Trinity and humanity in family and society. Trinity, love and forgiveness. Trinity in time and space, although I don't think I'll get to that one. But finally, then we'll talk about what all of this means. So beginning with that first, that first step, Trinity before creation. By the way, when you're talking with somebody of another religion, one of the most profound and penetrating questions you can ask, again, is what is your God like outside and before any creation? You're really asking, is your God big enough to be God? That's an amazing question because most don't think about it. From a Christian perspective, before any and all creation, God was completely self-sufficient. He didn't need anything. Moreover, he was all-inclusive. There was nothing that was not God. All that existed was God. Without beginning, God exists as eternal, forever choosing to be himself and forever freely expressive of his nature. That is, God is perfect, and he delights in that, and he freely is that. Tertullian, who was writing around 210, very early in Christian history, said this, Before all things, God was alone, being his own universe, location, everything. He was alone, however, in the sense that there was nothing external to himself. That's brilliant. He was a lawyer. Hippolytus was another, almost the same time, early 3rd century, 220. He said, speaking of God, though alone and all, and there was nothing else, he was multiple. That is, there's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If God were only one person, like the Allah of Islam or uh, the ways of many Jews thinking of their God, uh, would he be, how would he be glorious? If God is only one person, then let's face it, he really has to create something to glorify himself, doesn't he? I mean, where do you go with that? In fact, can he even really, or it even really be personal? Islam has immense trouble with that. Secondly, would God be love or loving or magnanimous? If there's nothing else, how could that be? We'll come back to that a little bit later, but... These are huge questions that I often ask when I'm in a mosque, if they'll allow me. But how can a God like that be truly personal? Islam tends to dissolve into power. Now, our definition, the one I'm, I'm sharing with you, is this, and we've said it before, but let's say it together right now one more time. The one true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in nature, equal in glory, and distinct in relations. Now, that was rather timid. If I were any of the other guys up here, I'd say, you've got to say it again. Let's do it right this time. So I'll do that anyway, okay? Let's start again. <laughs> the one true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One in nature, equal in glory, and distinct in relations. Second step, that's our God. Now God creates something, trinity and impersonal creation. It's not as though God created a rock before he created an angel, but logically, let's think of the impersonal first. 
Creation was called into existence out of nothing. We say ex nihilo, it's out of nothing, by fiat, by the power of his word. In one sense, when God created, I mean, he was everything before, he limited himself. For now, God was not everything. Something was not God. The rock, the tree, and the animal were not God. But of course, that's not pantheism where God uh, uh, effuses into everything, whether Greek pantheism or Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta Hinduism, many other forms. Rather, and I love the way that Thomas Finger, an Anabaptist theologian, puts it, all space, energy, matter, and time as we know it exist as God's creation and artistry, not as his essence, not some oozing out of God somehow. The, the, the little phrase I love of Finger's is this one, nature exists not by necessity, but by grace. God didn't have to create at all, not at all, but why did he create? That's a tough one, but he did create. Uh, think with me for a minute. If God was self-sufficient, there was all joy and glory and love and everything was beautiful, why would God create? I mean, not to be sacrilegious here, but God could have stayed in his man cave forever and ever and ever. And yet he created this universe we know that the lamb, or Jesus was like a lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. God was planning with his creation something beautiful, something that reflects his grace, but he did not have to create. Third, trinity and personal creation. By creating finite persons, God was no longer the only personal moral agent in existence. Human personhood, as we've been talking about a little bit, is based on the personal nature of the tri-personal God. In the West, we've, we've kind of obsessed with the individual. Everything, person is individual. I think, therefore, I am. That kind of way of understanding. And in the East, many times, particularly in Zen and other forms of Eastern thought, we don't even exist. There's no self. We are only a nexus of energies of others around us. But when it's all said and done, there's nothing there. When we look at the Trinity, we see there's, there's something absolutely beautiful here. That God is both three and one. He's defined each in their essence individually, if you can say that, or their distinction. And yet they're defined by their relations with one another, just as we are in life. Father, mother, whatever your relations are, we're defined in that way too. We see that God is tripersonal. In a way, that's a structure for how we understand what we are as persons as well. Well, human personhood derives in part from God's own personal reality. I mean, you see the father thinking, willing, and the emotions there. The son, the spirit, the same. That means as a human being, I have a reason for thought and language and expression. God speaks. God says, come, let us reason together. So that's what we're made for. That we're, we're made to, as one put it, think God's thoughts after him. We have a conscience. Many today have no way of explaining moral conscience, moral motions. But why do I get angry when there's atrocities or somebody does something against me I don't like or somebody I love? Where does that come from? And why are we creative people? Why is there aesthetic appreciation? 
What's going on in our lives when we see these things? It is God's image in us, even in the most decadent non-Christian, yet these things are being expressed that they want to deny the God, the personal God that gives them that existence. Dominion, a sense of eternality. The earliest graves we can find as in anthropology seem to all have belief in the afterlife somehow. Gorillas don't do that. Chimpanzees don't do that. Where does that come from? And what about our capacity and desire for relationality, for relationships, the I-thou with other people? I mean, we live in a hookup culture. Don't know your name, I don't care, and I never want to see you after tonight. That kind of stuff. Relationships are so often utilitarian, pragmatic. We get what we want, and then we move on. And yet, as we look at the Godhead, we look at Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in relationship it becomes glorious. That is the foundation. That's the structure. That's the ontology, in some ways, of what we are. Fourth, trinity and unity and diversity in the universe. This one I'll put some of you to sleep on, so I'll just do one frame, all right? Because the greatest philosophic question, one of the greatest, along with why is there something instead of nothing, is how does it all work? Are we all in a massive cosmic machine, a matrix? And we're screws and nuts and this massive thing, but we kind of think we're free. I mean, the early Greeks struggled with that. Everybody does in philosophy today. Or are we free, but if we're free, what does it mean? I mean, I'm delighted to be free, but I don't want to be a free, free in a spacesuit in outer space with two hours of oxygen and there's no longer a spaceship and there's no earth in sight. Freedom for what? To die. That's existentialism and much more. So... In contrast with all other religions and philosophies, the concept of Holy Trinity presents a meaningful relationship between the one and the many. There's no other philosophy or religion that does that, none. The Godhead embodies unity and diversity within itself. And this unity and diversity is reflected in all of creation from the, the most distant galaxies to the quarks and the neutron and proton and even below that. Three quarks compose the basic building blocks of the universe. You see it everywhere. It's glorious. Back to, though, all right, for our personhood individually, but let's think about Trinity and human relationality. Because as Christians, much of the world wants to say this as well, but they have no real finally, final foundation Christian faith proclaims that communication, our language and communication with others, friendship, love, these are all intensely personal activities, assume profound meaning with one another in relation to the tripersonal creator. And Jesus is that human being in all of history that's just in technicolor. He is intensely human in every way, beautiful, yet, of course, without sin. God is the foundation of our individual personhood and our relationships with others. Let's think about it a little bit more. And you need to contrast this constantly against atheism, which boils us down if you're a naturalist, to basically chemicals and neurons. And, and uh, if you think you're a person, that's the ghost of fiction in you. You're really, there is no person in the final sense of a soul. In contrast to the atheist and the pantheist, the Christian understanding of Trinity is the basis of meaning in all of human activity. 
And so we have a reason when we study a tree, we're not offending a god of the tree or, or the tree's not illusion in a world of Maya. We're studying the tree because studying the tree may tell us something about the creator of the tree, and that is our God. And that is why Christianity is often called the crib of the sciences. It is out of a tripersonal universe and a theistic universe that science makes sense and reasoned expression. Again, come let us reason together. An objective history of science history and all the rest. And by the way, because God is true and has created an objective universe, we have some foundation for the difference between fantasy and reality. I mean, almost every popular movie we watch today is playing, they're mind games, aren't they? They're playing with us. Uh, and in a way, destroying the difference between fantasy and, and, and reality. I mean, there's a place for cartoons and superheroes, I suppose, and all of that. But, but we, need, we need to understand there is a distinction and we need to keep it clear. Our creativity, all creativity is done in a context of culture. And so whether dance or music or art, whatever it might be, these are social events, and we enter into that in our cultures and societies and enjoy that part of what it means to be human. We can be creative because God is creative. I love that. Dance on, huh? Community, friendship, koinonia. Of all people in the world, again, we should not only be the most transparent, the most radiant. What do we have to lose? We're saved by God, by grace. So let's be what we are as human beings. We should be the most transparent, attractive people in the neighborhood, at the school, whatever it is. Koinonia has immense value. Now let me tell you about something else. I want to be careful here. God as Trinity, each indwells the other. We talked about perichoresis in the last hour, a couple hours back. That is, each indwells the other. But of course, God transcends gender. But when he said, let us make man in our own image, he created us male and female. And just in the most natural sense, male and female are made to become one flesh, the mutual inhabitation or penetration, which is actually the translation of perichoresis. And so we live in a world where sexual intimacy, or at least sex, has sort of blown out the walls. And so our kids say, Dad, Mom, why not? How far can I go? Uh, why can't I watch that movie with all my friends? And it goes on and on and on. And we usually say as evangelicals, well, the Bible says, and the 15-year-old's thinking, oh, maybe there's a whole lot more going on here that we need to understand. That because God is united in covenant, he has created us as man and woman and, and ordained such that this is to be done in covenant. It is sacred. It approaches something, even in the natural sense, of the unity of the very Godhead itself. That is why God has its limitations and rules around how sexual intimacy is to be expressed and not to be expressed. It is covenantal in one sense. It is sacred. That goes a lot further with your teenager. We can work for the good of others. Uh, we should be, again, effusive of goodness. And we can show personal mercy when we've been offended or hurt or others in our Christian community, but we still cry out for public justice. That's what governments are for. You don't forgive everything of the mass murderer just because you want to show the love of God. There's public justice. There's the holiness of God as well as the mercy we've been shown 
and so we show it to others. When we tap into Trinity and human relationality, it just goes, it goes in every direction. Well, what we see in the humanity of Jesus corresponds with the deepest structure, reality of what we are as human beings, also created in the image of God. Sure, there's sin out there. There are awful things that happen, so nothing is ideal, but we have an ideal. And in all of this, we're not three persons. We are one person. We need other people in our lives on every level, and don't be ashamed to say that. As persons, we are created for relationships with one another in the church, friendships around us, of course, in family, and so forth. We need others. I don't have to tell you that the 21st century is in crisis. There's absolute disarray of societal structures with no ultimate framework for personal relations. So it splatters in every direction as family, what's left of families, as churches, as society, as nations, as a global community. Yeah. But when we understand that God is Trinity... In this biblical worldview, we as human beings, individually and socially, we fit within the order of creation. It makes sense where so many are struggling. It makes no sense at all. It's crazy. In Trinitarian theology, our humanity has found a home. There's both equality of individuals and structure of social relations. That is just beautiful. Let's take another step. Trinity, love, and forgiveness. Twice in the scriptures we are told God is, in fact, before the throne, the living creatures crying out to the one on the throne, holy, holy, holy. Never says love, love, love. I would, I would want to nuance Michael Reeves' book a little bit. He puts a lot on love, which is true. But God is love. We are told that straight away. Love, by biblical definition, is Toward another. Love only for oneself is selfish. It is egocentric. Richard of St. Victor, 11th century saint, it is never said of anyone that he possesses charity because of the exclusively personal love that he has for himself. For there to be charity or love, there must be a love that is directed toward another. Consequently, where there's an absence of plurality of persons, he's talking about God, this is an argument for Trinity, where, where there's an absence of, of plurality of persons, there cannot be charity. Allah is not love. God of the Bible is. But as we say, well, God is love and God is just, how does that work? How do these two things fit together? This is a huge dilemma for, for Jews and especially Muslims. If God were only one person, look at this for a minute. He could be the moral absolute of the universe. He could be perfectly, perfectly just and holy. But if he forgave somebody, he'd no longer be perfectly holy. He's no longer the Lord Chief Justice of the universe. He sacrificed that to show compassion, forgiveness. If he's forgiving, then he's no longer the moral absolute of the universe. There's, that's, that's an absolute paradox for the Muslim, and I talk with Muslims sometimes about it. It's their Achilles heel, one of them. And yet we come to the Bible 
And look at what we see. This is possible because God is Trinity. He is the just and the justifier of all who believe. He is perfectly holy, and yet God himself in Christ satisfies that perfect demand by fulfilling it himself. And then there's the Holy Spirit who applies that into our lives. Just and justifier, that's as good as it gets. Let's go a little further. In the end, Trinity, Trinity is the idea of ideas. It is the grand final meta-narrative. And so it's the concept that brings everything together for us. It is true. Final note here. We might say that God is everywhere, creation is not. For those who are Christians redeemed by Christ's death at Calvary, finite creation constitutes an enormous crib over and around which the triune God hovers, affectionately caring for his own. Get this, all creation will sometime, someday recognize the infinite debt we owe to our God, the greatness and beauty for creating us. There's no way to pay it back other than to express that gratitude through song, through worship, and all the rest. But worship, giving glory to God, is that comprehension of our indebtedness to God. And that's our primary role as creation. And so... We praise God. What can we as finite creatures give to God? Nevertheless, there is no more blessed glory than the glory given by one member of the Trinity to the other because only God can comprehend and love and glorify God, each wholly comprehending and exalting the magnificence of the other. Isn't that beautiful? Our Lord, your... Your immensity goes far, far beyond what we can comprehend. Yet you've given us little pieces. You've given us seeds. And we asked it in this seminar this weekend with Pastor Afshin and with Pastor Aaron and with what has been taught on different levels. Lord God, would you take us deep, deep into the faith? Reveal your goodness and wonder and who we are in you more than ever before. We worship you. We say hallelujah. Thank you, our God. In Jesus' name.